Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I'm your host today. Do you have a child who joined your family through adoption, foster care, or a kinship placement? If yes, you're listening to the right podcast. Our topic today is whole brain parenting, the magic wand. Our guest today is Nick Lawrence, who has a master's, is a parent educator, a family resiliency coach, a foster and adoptive parent, and also the foster and kinship care education director for Sonoma County. He is also a valued Help One Child blog contributor, parent trainer, and podcast recorder. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for being with us today. It is my complete pleasure. Can you share an overview of what you've learned by using this parenting approach and also training others in whole brain parenting that will help our foster, adoptive, and kinship parents practically approach their children? And what is this magic wand of parenting? Do tell. (laughs) Yes, everybody wants the magic wand. Well, the class I teach is based on the Whole Brain Child Workbook by Daniel Siegel and Tina Poon Bryson, both uh, experts in the industry brain area of development and uh, child rearing. And so this book, I'm the one who calls it the magic wand. And I do that because what you learn about the brain by studying this work is that the brain has its own way of reacting to things, but we personalize them. We take things personally. Like if your kid is having a tantrum or a meltdown or what we would call a negative reaction to something, somehow sometimes parents feel shame or like, you're doing, like we're doing a bad job as parents because our child is having this reaction. So when we learn about the brain and how it works, we start to say, oh, um, my child's, the right side of my child's brain is flooding, not um, he's having, he's, he's being a brat or something like that. So it helps you see, oh, my child is having a physiological response to something. Um, I better be nurturing to him or her and help her through this situation. So it relieves parents. And it's not only about parents and kids. It's parents and each other. Like, oh, my spouse is having one of those reactions. Or... I'm having one of those reactions. So once you know, once you notice, wow, someone is having a reaction, that's the magic wand. This isn't personal. They're not attacking me. They're having a really hard time. And that magic wand, once you know how to use it, really, really helps. Wonderful. Can you discuss the relationship between our capacity for stress and babies crying? I know as someone who's attended multiple trainings with you that were outstanding, by the way. Um, you really often emphasize this at the beginning of your training. So how does stress and, and babies crying relate? It's true. It's something that I, it's, it's my trademark. It's not in the, the workbook. Um, this is all about the human nervous system. And then this interesting thing happens. We're thrilled that they had that initial cry, and then 
much later afterwards, people actually start talking about their babies in terms of good or bad, in terms of how much they cry. Oh, my baby's so good, he never cries. Oh, they actually need the crying. And there are three main reasons that babies cry. I mean, there's many reasons, but the three basic reasons are that the baby is hungry, the baby is tired, or they need a diaper change. Those are the three main reasons. So when a baby cries, they're telling you, um, my self-care indicator is up and I need some help because I'm a baby and I can't help myself yet. And so how the caregiver or the parent responds is paramount into many decisions that that baby's going to make about life. So for example, if, if we have three examples, baby number one, two, and three, baby number one cries, wah, wah, I need you, I need you. And uh, within a reasonable amount of time, the parent comes and says, oh, you done, oh, you done, you And they're loving and cuddling, and the baby goes, oh, wow, this crying thing, is this is a great tool. I feel this feeling inside. I cry, and my mom or dad or whoever comes and tells me and takes care of me and tells me I'm okay. This crying thing is a really good thing. Baby number two, the baby cries, and it takes a really long time for the caregiver to respond. So they have this me this mechanism, this built-in self-care mechanism, saying, I need help. And the degree to which the caregiver responds starts to impact the child's belief about the use of crying. Is it helpful or not? Does it get me what I need or not? And in baby number three, this is where how often we have fostering kids, either nothing happens, the baby goes hungry, the baby falls asleep where they are or wakes up where they are, or they don't get their diaper changed for a really long time, or they get abused for crying. And baby number three says, Get it. I am not using this crying thing. This is a terrible tool. Number one, I don't get my needs met, and if I make any noise, I get slapped or something. So there's a forget it. I'm not interested at all. And that is the basis of that person's, maybe one, two, or three, it's a basis of their perspective on the idea and concept of self-care for their lifetime, unless they look deeply in themselves and do their inner work to find out why do I have such a hard time with personal hygiene or something, like what's going on? So to answer your question about our capacity for stress, everybody's cortisol level, that's our main stress hormone, it gets set when we're babies, and it's like a thermostat. So the lower setting, okay, so Matt, oh, you can't see me, but imagine it, like a thermometer, and so Cortisol gets set at a low setting, and now you have all this capacity uh, for stress. Whereas baby number two, their thermostat gets set higher, and baby number three is set almost at the top. And so when you look at these three uh, thermometers, there's one with a lot of clear space in it, one with not so much clear space, and the third with a little tiny bit at the top. And those capacities, that, that's our capacity for stress. So baby number threes have very little capacity for stress and will end up bringing up their cortisol response much sooner for situations that doesn't affect baby number one at all. Baby number one is like, yeah, so you forgot your homework, who cares? Or your dog eat your dinner or whatever it is. Um, 
baby number one and roll with it. Baby number two, not so much. And baby number three is the least amount of capacity and stress. Likewise, all the baby number threes in the world are the most likely to self-medicate earlier than other kids and other adults. And we all grow up, so we're the adults. Who are the adults self-medicating? There's a lot of addicts um, who are self-medicating. And then if you look back and you say, well, were you a baby number three? You realize, yes, they were, and their addiction simply comes from the inability to handle everyday stress and um, trying to find a mechanism to, to do self-care. And so it can get glossed over for years until someone does their, their work. So it's really our, our ability to cry, our innate ability to cry or to feel things, or to be unhappy about something or to be happy or to wish for something, it's all related to our nervous system and capacity for stress. And our capacity for stress, yes. I think that's a very helpful beginning for us that are parenting children uh, from hard places and children who've had disrupted caregiving or trauma exposure yeah. early on. Um, and it's really part of the magic wand. It's this awareness. that If, if you get this concept that I'm saying, and you look at your child and you're all doing something together, and then your child randomly out of the blue has some kind of episode, they're screaming or crying or they're angry, and all of a sudden you're like, what the heck? And it's so easy to think, what a rotten kid. <laughs> Instead say, wow, their nervous system is really responding to something that none of the rest of us are responding to. And that's where your curiosity comes in. Say, I wonder what it is. And that's just so helpful. I wonder why he's doing that. Honey, are you okay? No, you seem really upset. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But it's really different approach saying, wow, that person is really having a very intense nervous system response. And your brain is part of your nervous system. And this is what they've done. Can you say more, Nick, about the first whole brain parenting strategy of connect and redirect instead of command and demand? And give us some concrete, practical examples, if possible. Yeah. Command and demand is, I think, is the way that most people were parenting. We have this whole thing about children should be seen and not heard and don't fuss and don't complain. And Command and demand is when, when someone comes to you and, um, like, uh, let's say a child comes to you and they've just dropped their ice cream cone, but they were licking it and the, the, the scoop plopped off the top of the cone and landed on the ground. Here's, here's an example. And they come to you with this empty cone. Okay? A lot of parents, the first response, the kid's sobbing. <laughs> ice cream's on the floor. A lot of parents would say, I told you to sit down and hold it with two hands. Or, I told you not to lick the ice cream that hard. Or I told you not to do that. Okay, that's like a command in the mood. And so, um, uh, or like a broken toy. I broke my toy. I told you to be more careful with that. It's not in any way acknowledging what the person's going through. It's from a different place of either. I don't have the money to buy you another one, or um, I was shamed when I did things like that, 
And so this command and demand is demanding you to think better, demanding that you um, have a different outcome than where you are right now. And so connect and redirect is, is realizing that, yes, you have to teach your kids, um, for example, with the ice cream. Yes, you have to teach your kids to sit down. You have to teach your kids how to, you know, how to handle an ice cream cone, or maybe get them a cup with a spoon. Um, <laughs> but the moment that they're sobbing over it is not the teaching moment. When someone is sobbing, and this is where the magic wand because what you have to understand is that the right side of the brain holds our emotions, and the left side of the brain holds our logic and our language. And there's a little gap, a little bridge between the two of them. And when someone gets upset and their emotions are very strong, if it happens in a certain way, the right brain will flood with those emotions faster than the left brain can calm them down. And so then you have an emotional flood. So if you've ever seen like uh, the, the ground, if you're watering and you put too much water down in your rose bushes or a, a pot, you have to wait for the water to sink in. You, 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 you can't do anything else until it sinks in. So likewise with emotions, if someone's emoting, they're not going to be able to access their logic or their language. So another example, a very frequent example, is a child comes running to you. And parents say, stop crying, use your words. Well, that's impossible. Because once you're crying, you don't have access to your words until the flood comes down. Get <sighs> your breath. Billy hit me. Or I dropped my ice cream. Or I broke my toy. Okay. So when they're upset, the, the kindest thing you can do is to say, wow, you're really upset. As soon as you're done crying, tell me what happened. As soon as you're done, tell me what happened. That allows the time and space and the honoring of the feelings that that person is having. And for the flood to go down, and believe me, the flood goes down a lot quicker if you validate. Say, oh my God, you're so upset. As soon as you're done crying, as soon as you can, tell me what happened. Instead of stop crying, use your word. Because stop crying, use your word. <laughs> and you can't even get to the words anyway. So, and especially for boys. Boys are told, you know, I'll stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. So boys get really confused about being human and about these feelings that are innate in us uh, before testosterone comes in and kind of subdues them. But it's very important to connect first. So once you connect, oh gosh, I dropped my ice cream when I was a kid too. Okay, yeah, well, let's share mine. I don't have any more money, so you can have some money. Calm down, sharing the ice cream. You say, no, sweetheart, next time, sit down right next to Dad, and uh, I'll help you make sure you don't lose your ice cream. Okay, Daddy, thank you. And that's where the redirecting comes in. After the situation has softened, and where you're not going to shame them or bully them um, for a mistake that every human goes through. And the kids go through over and over. We, we have to learn things many times sometimes, or we think, no, I got it, I got it, I, I'm a big kid now, and I'm going to do it like the big kids with me, and then one lick and the thing lands on the floor, darn it. So the person's already feeling bad. There's no reason for us to, to bully our own children. 
Okay? And that's what we do if we get after our kids when they're already upset. Who remembers their mom or dad who just shred them when they did stupid stuff? I mean, that's not a happy memory. It's like, then you hear about my mom and dad, they were so kind to me. Like, really? <laughs> And that's what we can do now. And you're like, oh, man, that really stinks. Yep. And then when they're calm, you know what? Next time, let's do it like this. So that's connect and redirect. It's just if you notice yourself with your finger up, pointing and wagging your finger at someone, then you are in command and demand. And it doesn't help anybody. It makes everybody feel bad. So why not feel good? That's the point. Even in bad situations. Can still feel good. It's like, oh my gosh, that really hurts. Yes, that that ice cream example. I think we can all picture it <laughs> in our families. That's a great example, uh, and how we fall into that parenting trap of like, if you would have just <laughs> totally. Yes, yes. Can I you... told you last time. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, you know, this time I was feeling more confident. I mean, thank goodness our kids ignore us okay? because we're like, don't get hurt, don't do this, don't do that, all this stuff. And the kids are like, oh, whatever, but I want to climb that tree. So thank goodness that they still say, uh huh, uh huh, and then and then follow their impulses to grow. Otherwise, we they would be little zombies. So we are the ones who have to say, okay, well, just do your best for your safety check. I trust you to try it out. And really, go ahead, Christine. Yes, and I, I was wondering if you could also speak about the second strategy of whole brain parenting, name it to tame it instead of dismiss and deny. Yeah, this is a great, uh, it's a great skill. So let's stay with the, with the ice cream example. Okay. So there's your little kid. The ice cream's on the floor. It was, uh, they were sitting somewhere on a curb. And by the time you get there, all these ants have now run around the ice cream. There's no way to salvage this ice cream, okay? And the child's just sitting there, <sighs> crying, right? So dismiss and deny would be someone that couldn't get, don't cry. It's okay. Don't feel bad. Just be more careful. But that's dismissing and denying the fact that they're crying and that their ice cream is so name it to tame it is where you say, oh my gosh, you dropped your ice cream. So I just named it. Instead of saying, don't cry, don't don't feel the way you're feeling. Well, dad, mom, I'm already feeling this way. So don't tell me not to feel how I feel. So you say, oh my gosh, you dropped your ice cream. So you just named it. Oh my gosh, that's so upsetting, isn't it? Yeah, I dropped it again. done crying, come and share mine, and next time you can sit next to me and I'll help you. Okay? Okay. So it's it's naming exactly what happened. Another example would be if a child tripped over uh, let's say a tree trunk uh, or something in the, in the play, play yard and it'd be easy, the child's crying and it'd be so easy to say why are you in the big kid's playground? I told you not to jump over that your legs are little. What that, you know, dum-dum. <laughs> it's shaming in a sense. It's so easy to say, you know, don't cry. 
we, it's okay. You're okay. You're not bleeding. You're fine. And they're like, Ugh. so again, it's it's that subtle difference of just saying, don't feel how you feel, versus, oh my gosh, I saw you trip. You tripped. Oh my gosh, that must really hurt. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I did that, and I tripped as well, and it really hurt. So um, it's very, it's very important to stay with your child and acknowledge what they're going through. Oh, I see that, and then you to name it to team it. When you're teaming apart, is where you say. Want me to tell you what happened? Yeah. When they calmed down. Oh, I saw you. You were running. And then you went to jump over that big tree trunk that you tree trunk that you're trying to get over. Or tree stump. And um and then you tripped. And then you went bowling and crashing. And uh, I could see that that really hurt a lot. It did. Okay, well when you're feeling better, we'll go over there and we'll find a way to help you climb up it. Maybe we'll put a little step there next time. Okay. So that's name of the team versus denying that they're feeling the way they're feeling. And I just want to add that in adult relationships, this is one of the biggest problems that adults have with each other is that they try to tell the other person not to feel the way they feel. And you don't feel that way. I do feel this way. Don't feel you shouldn't feel that way. I feel this way. And so to get out of the habit of saying don't feel the way you're feeling. Just say, wow, that must be really upsetting. I can see why you're upset. I'd be upset too. That was my situation. And just that validation goes, oh, it's like becoming baby, being baby number three and all of a sudden being baby number one. Your caregiver, your person is saying, oh, you need a bottle. Oh, you need some love. Oh, you need a new ice cream. Oh, you need some validation. And we can move to being baby number one by having the kind of two connection with our, our family members. Yes, and I bet that would work with uh, adolescents as well as you talk about kind of the older relationships, even with our older children that are teenagers or young adults as well. The validation exactly. and attunement. Exactly. But so much of this, okay, so much of this really has to do with each parent doing their own personal work around their own start in life. Were you maybe one, two, or three? What were some of the situations that was involved in your upbringing? How were you treated when you had quote unquote negative emotions? And all those things go into the moment of, of how you respond to other people. We don't, we don't even have time to think about it. We just do it. So if we notice that we are kind of hard on one person in particular or dismissing what they're saying, that's a good time to say, wow, maybe they're having a really hard time. And my point is that sometimes when people around us have a hard time, we end up attuning to them. We join them in having a hard time. So it's really important that you stay grounded and notice, well, that person is having a hard time, but I'm not. I'm clear and grounded and I feel good. And that is where the real, um, where some of the real work is in terms of having a magic wand to use is that 
you're staying clear and you're noticing that they're having a hard time. And then you're able to say, oh my gosh, my darling, you're having a hard time. Let me comfort you. I love that. Thank you. And can you share how we can help our children get to a place of one of the other tools, rest and digest versus fight or flight? Yes, this is such, this is like the, the, the two things that we brought in that are not part of the workbook are the BB1, 2, and 3 and the capacity for stress. And then this idea of, uh, again, the nervous system. We have two parts of our autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is designed for fight or flight. And the parasympathetic is designed for rest and digest. And it's literal. It's really designed for and it's really designed for digesting food and, and repairing your body. And rest and digest is partly when you sleep, um, but also um, during the day. Now imagine a, a happy baby. The baby's just laying there on a soft uh, blanket on the floor. It's got a, a, a mobile above them, and they're just la 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 la, right? And they put their foot in their mouth, and they put something in their mouth, and they're just in happy baby land. That's rest and digest. And as we mature, we just we just walk in nature or just sit down. You know, we're hopefully in rest and digest. So the issue with parenting traumatized children or having been parented in a traumatized way, so we could all be baby number threes and never have gone into foster care. Um, the, the point is that if we are living out of fight or flight, and we are running our body on cortisol. We'd be like having two kinds of gasoline in the car. One that's like super duper for speed and, and getaway, and another one that's for just relaxing. And so when we burn cortisol, we um, we burn we burn up our lives. We burn up our capacity for stress. We have zero, um, or maybe a little bit more. It's very dangerous. So. Recognizing, this is again that thing about being curious, wow, my son is really having an intense reaction when we're just walking in the mall or we're all sitting here having dinner and all of a sudden my daughter just threw a major tantrum and ran off to her room. Wondering, why did my child suddenly go into fight or flight? And how can I get them back to rest and digest? So, the basic tool for resting like this is you put your feet flat on the floor and you close your eyes and you breathe in through your nose to the count of three and out of your mouth like you're blowing through a straw to the count of six. So the longer, it's twice as long on the exhale. And you do it through your own. That short inhalation and long exhalation is like a switch that switches you from any kind of agitation that you were having. You may not have been in like really fight or flight, but you might have been in an agitated state that was like fight or flight, and you want to get over to rest and digest. And you want to do that with your kids. So I would suggest sitting down with your kids, telling them, hey, you know what, depending on your age, this is a really good thing for us to do. It's called 3 6 breathing. Let's do it. So you come home from school, let's all get a, a cookie and our cup of juice or milk, whatever, had our snack, now let's go sit down. Now some people, that's not going to work. 
So I would recommend getting little tiny mini um, bottles of bubbles and say, okay, now we're going to do bubbles. And let's, you know, those little tiny ones, you can't blow very hard because you'll just blow the bubble solution right off of the little stick. So the little tiny ones, you have to blow really carefully. So I'd say, let's have a bubble surface and let's have all our bubbles meet together in the middle of the table. Keep it in and then go. Just like basic breathing. And then, oh, let's do bubble. Oh, look, you bubble touch my bubble. Yay, and we're having this bubble thing. Or um, you could do coloring. Let's color something together. And then you can get some um, markers, like kind of fat markers, and you can say, you know what? I like to make sure that all the ink is dry. Or bake cookies and breathe in the beautiful smell of the cookies because vanilla is one of the things that helps people with their endorphins. And blow on the cookies to cool them. Whatever it takes to have that kind of breathing. Or lay on the ground together and all hold hands and the hands together and pretend that you're blowing something up to the sky. Something that will bring you this relaxed kind of breathing would be very helpful and fun. Yes, those are wonderful suggestions. Um, can you tell us what is the upstairs and what is the downstairs brain? How can we help our children from hard places better engage their upstairs brain? And how might we do that even ourselves <laughs> as parents? This is so important. So we in, in the workbook, you'll see that there's, there's the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. And downstairs so what we're talking about in the downstairs and upstairs is really the brain stem going through the middle of the brain and then to the frontal, the prefrontal and the middle cortex and the front of the brain. And so at the very base of the brain stem is the reptilian brain. And, you know, all, all living animals, um, we all share a certain amount of DNA. And so... Uh, the reptilian brain is our most basic instinctual response to things. Then we have the mammalian brain. It's a little higher up in the brain. And that's the mammals. Okay, And so we have a, a better capacity uh, to deal with stress and impulse control. And then the humans, we have this most sophisticated brain. And in the very top front, we have the frontal cortex. And that's the upstairs brain that the authors are talking about. And that upstairs brain is responsible for impulse control, problem solving, and um, social interaction. Okay, so it's right up here uh, in the, in the, above your eyes in the front part of your head. And again, impulse control, problem solving, social interaction versus the downstairs of the brain, which is your instinctual responses, which is where fight or flight comes from. So it takes until your mid-20s to fully develop the, the frontal cortex of your brain and the capacity for this kind of problem solving. And really what I'm talking about is like moral problem solving, moral planning. Like if I do this, will it affect someone else in a bad way? A lot of kids don't think about that. They're like, oh, I really want that Snickers bar and I'm just going to take it. Okay, This is just an example. Some kids, many kids will not. But there's an impulse issue in younger children where they just they can't consider the consequences or what it might mean for someone else. So a lot of times we have really high expectations of our children 
that they are going to be, have these moral uh, capabilities of weighing out all these possible outcomes, and they don't. And kids that are in foster care are, or adopted often take um, until their 30s to develop what other kids have developed in their 20s. So it might even take longer. So this is true for us as well. Of Again, it comes about down to um, noticing, I mean, being curious about your own self. Why do I react so strongly in certain situations? Why does my wife bug me so much when she she laughs or when she makes a comment? And why does my husband get so disturbed when uh, you know when I laugh or make a comment? Or why does just having this curiosity um, about each other and about ourselves? Why do I do the things that I do? And are you in a fight or flight reaction? something? Or are you in a rest and digest mode? And so usually rest and digest, because rest and digest is also um, like the left side of the brain, which is logic and language. The logic and language naturally um, fuels the impulse control and problem solving. It's like the, the top and the left are working together and the right and the bottom are working together. The emotions and so we're trying to balance out top and bottom, right to left, and it just starts with you noticing your own reactions and your own longings. Do I, am I behaving the way I want to behave? Fast forward 20 years, are my kids going to say, my dad was there for me, he really listened to me, and they're going to say, nah, he just yelled at me and told me what to do, <laughs> right? And so that's what we're dealing with right now, is we're breaking the chain of whatever was done to us. And it's just a tremendous gift to give your kids, but to give the entire world, every one of us that breaks this chain, is freeing every other human being from this point forward. It's magnificent work. And Nick, what is the three-step process of move it or lose it for parents? as well. Well, the great thing about move it or lose it is this is when you're in a power struggle. Honey, time to get dressed. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's time for school. No, I'm not going. Okay, or whatever. I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. And you know the routine of getting your kid out the door in the morning. This is just an example. So a lot of times what happens with children, especially um, children in care, is that something is bothering them about the authoritative thing that's happening right then. And so move it or lose it is a process where you enter into a game-like strategy and you say, hmm, I'm going to make this playful. You don't say it out loud. You think, okay, me being the power here is not having a powerful response. It's having the opposite response. Again, it's another way to say, huh, it's, a, it's like naming it to team. Like, wow, this child isn't doing what I'm asking them to do. And instead of saying, do what I say or I'll give you something to cry about, we only have a few minutes to get out the door. I'm going to try a different approach. And that's moving to lose it. Hey, I know you don't want to get dressed, but since we have to get dressed, let's play a game. Let's play the jumping jack game. Let's both do a jumping jack, and then you put on your shirt. Okay? All right, ready? 
Then they, okay, great, you put this on, yay! Now we're gonna do jump for the stars, ready? Let's see how far you can jump. Yay, you're so good, you're such a good jumper. Put your shorts on, great, here we go. Now we're gonna do this, now we're gonna do that. Kids are like, okay, mom is playing with me. We're not in a power struggle anymore. We're on equal footing and we're both playing the game. So that's the process, you notice, oh, this isn't going the way I want it. You acknowledge, we still have to do this, but we're going to play a game. And the game makes equal footing. And they feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, somehow it feels like my mom cares about me. They're not just making me do this thing that feels uncomfortable to me. And I don't know why yesterday he got dressed just fine, and today he can't get dressed. That doesn't matter. What matters is that something was bothering his nervous system. And I, if I want to get along with my kid and not pull him by the ear to get him out the door, then I have to validate wherever he's at, which is, I know you don't feel like it, but hey, let's play a game. Okay, that sounds like fun. And usually they'll do it. It's wonderful. Yes, okay. Um, and, and I can see how parents can get stuck if they're frustrated or if their brain is flooding or they're feeling so stressed about the schedule that it can be hard to switch to that play mode. And that, that's the trick to kind of practice our skills and fill our toolbox with as many of these varied approaches so that what our child needs in that moment we can attune to, which is Easier said than done. Yeah, right. it's not always easy. And, and this is definitely a pay now or pay later kind of approach. And I have raised many foster children. adopted the last one. She's 17 now. I can tell you that in certain circumstances, if it's a stressful situation, my daughter, she's 17, she just goes into freeze mode. It's fight or flight or freeze. And she goes back to the reptilian brain and she freezes. Like, for example, when we had the fires here, we had a few sets of fires here in San Rosa. The first round, we were all, the alarm was going off in town. We all had to evacuate. And she just started sobbing and running around in a circle. And it was horrible. I couldn't get her to get in to help me or anything. And I just had to keep saying, she, this is the best she can do. And so we, we knew that about her anyway from when she was younger. Certain circumstances, there was just no, um, she wasn't going to be able to help the family. She's not on the team. She needs her own team during that time. So we had, I was not surprised, and I said, okay, honey, you just stay over here, and why don't you watch some TV? And she said, okay, thanks. And she watched TV while the rest of us did stuff. I'm not saying that that's the same thing in terms of getting your kid out in the morning, and it certainly wasn't a game, but that was an emergency situation. But I still have to recognize and know that in certain circumstances, she goes into freeze mode, and that's just like being flooded. I have to wait for her to thaw out before she can come back. It's just how her nervous system is, and she's much better than she used to be. So when each of you, it's, it's pay an hour, pay later, if you are going to end up yelling at your kid, and then your kids start sobbing, and you still didn't get them to school on time. But now you have a sobbing kid, and you're really frustrated and 
upset and going into your day not prepared, that's paying a lot. That if you had said, hey, let's play the jumping jack game, and you got goofy, you're all going to be in a better mood. So pay now with a funny game and see how it goes versus playing later and being off all morning and sending your kid to school in a really bad that makes a lot of sense. Uh, as we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else you'd like to share with our foster adoptive or kinship parents about using this whole brain parenting magic wand approach, as you like to call it? Well, I would say it would be good for you to get the workbook and, um, and look through it. It is, um, it's a lot of work to do on your own, but it's still valuable. And, um, the other thing, really, is I just want to say that it is so easy to get lost in a traumatized child as, a, as, a, as an adult because we get into it to save a life. And then some of them have so many needs. And we genuinely give everything that we have to them. But sometimes it isn't enough. And then we get stuck in a loop where we're, um, we're giving more than we have to give. And it's easy to get burned out. So what I would say, the most important thing, is that you ask yourself, what is good about me? What is good for me? And I mean the adults, me, mom and dad. What is good about me? What is good for me? And then spend time doing those things and say to your kids, today we're going to the beach because mommy loves putting her feet in the ocean. Now let's all hold hands. That's what we're doing today. Or tonight we're painting because mommy loves painting. Or tonight we're cooking because daddy loves cooking. Or tonight we're coloring because Johnny loves to color. And so what is good for each person should be shared with the rest of the family. And then you validate and support what is good in each person. And instead of ruminating on what's bad about each person, you start ruminating on what's good. That's not even ruminating. You start praising what's good about each person. And when you start changing and thinking about what's good about your kid, your spouse, and your life, then your experience of your kid, your family, more positive. And the more you focus on what's good, the more positive it will be. It sounds like an overly simple thing, but it isn't. It's very easy to get stuck in all the negativity with the child welfare system and the, the process. It, it's just, you know, it's painful. So you have to really say, I love myself. I love my kids love my spouse, and we have the best life. It has up and downs, have ups and downs, but we are on the right track. We are focusing on what's good about each of us, and together we are better as a team. Thank you, Nick. This has been a very helpful conversation. I really appreciate your time, your insights, um, I know you offer family resiliency coaching. I know you also offer classes for groups of parents together on whole brain parenting. 
And um, so I think it'll be exciting if more of our families are able to take advantage of those resources and that expertise you offer. I have some takeaways from this conversation. I know for my own parenting, you use some great examples. I'm sure our listeners do as well. And uh, we hope to have you back for future conversations and also for a training on whole brain parenting for Help One Child families. So thank you again. Really appreciate your time. Take care. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.